the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, verse 11 to the end of the chapter today. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 15. So read along with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Father, we ask today that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and reveal your truth to us and let that truth, God, transform us. Let that truth set us free from the attitudes and the strongholds and the mindsets that would hold us in bondage. We ask, God, that your will would be done in us, even as it is in heaven, that your will would be done through us in this place, in this city, in our lives. Lord, that it would be done even as it is in heaven. We give you honor. We give you glory. We ask this in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus. Everybody said? Amen. So, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. So, this is what we're going to focus on today. We're going to talk about what the grace of God is teaching us. We've talked about the grace of God. We talked about the grace that brings salvation, what that means. It has appeared to all men. And Paul writes to Titus. He said, Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation, that has appeared to all men, is teaching us. And what is it that grace is teaching us? Well, let's look at what Paul writes to Titus here and declares to him in this letter that the grace of God teaches us. The grace of God teaches us first to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. James writes in his letter, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. He said, hey, you're not tempted by God. You're tempted by your own lust and your own desires. I even believe this, the devil gets, a, gets a more blamed than he than he, he often deserves. Um, you know, some of you, I know Conway always reminds me of the old Flip Wilson. Now, see, I'm telling you my age here. Some of you don't even know who Flip Wilson is. But remember Flip Wilson? He used to always say, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. Your own lust and your own desire made you do it. That's what the Scripture says. Now, does the enemy use that? Absolutely. But you need to understand this. Christian, the devil cannot make you do anything. He cannot make you do anything. If you're in Christ, the devil has no control over you other than what you give him. 
You give place to your own lusts and your own desires. Can the enemy use that? Absolutely, and he will use that. But the enemy cannot make you follow your own lusts and your own desires. He can tempt you to. All he has is the power to suggest. That's all the power he has for you is the power to suggest. Look at Adam and Eve in the very beginning. The serpent did not make them eat the fruit. He suggested that they eat the fruit. What was it that caused Eve to eat the fruit? It was her own lust. It was the lust of her eyes. It was the lust of her flesh. And it was the pride of life that caused her to eat that fruit. She was drawn away by her own lust and enticed. And so grace is teaching us that we are to deny ungodly and worldly lust. And we're to deny those because they are contrary to the life and the nature of Christ and the life we have in the Spirit. So Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit are contrary to one another. They are diametrically opposed to one another. So we're to deny ungodly Lust, worldly lust, because they are contrary to the Spirit of God. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 speaks of how we have, through the great and precious promises that God has given to us through the knowledge of Christ, that He has delivered us from the corruption that is in the world through lust. So Peter speaks of this corruption that's in the world through lust. And that we have been delivered from that corruption of lust. How? By the knowledge of Christ and the great and precious promises that we have in Christ. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 talks about the lust of the world. This is where, turn over there real quickly. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 John does a great summary here to help us understand what creates a lot of the problems and difficulties in our life. John 2.16, 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you know that every sin we're tempted with, every sin we participate in, can be lumped into these three categories right here? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Some of them fall into all three of them. And so he says, this is, this is, what, uh, this is what's going on in the world. This is not of the Father, but this is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we are taught here. Paul is writing to Titus saying, Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Why? Because these are contrary to Christ, his life and his nature and the life of the spirit that we have. These things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So through faith, this is how we overcome these things that are inherently part of the world. We don't have to give place to them. 
we have victory over them. We lived under the bondage of them, subservient to them, but when we were born again, we were set free from these things. So we don't have to serve them any longer. So by grace, through faith, we are saved to overcome the world and its lust. So the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It doesn't just teach us what we are to not do. It teaches us how we are to live. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live how? We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the grace of God teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. These three words describe a way of life. They're not just three things we are to do. Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, Titus, this is the way of life for the believer. Not just you, because you're a pastor. Because he commands him at the end of this section here. We have verses and chapter markers. Paul commands Titus, speak these things. Not just these things in the last two or three verses, but everything that I've written in this letter Speak these things with authority. Speak these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone disregard you or despise you because you're speaking the truth. So Paul says the grace teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And this describes a way of life that is consistent with the life of Christ and our life in the Spirit. So... We live in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talk about the fruit of the Spirit. So where does fruit come from? Does it come from within the tree or does it come from without? It comes from within the tree. So if the life of the Spirit is in us, the fruit of the Spirit should be coming out of us or manifest through us. Galatians 5.25, Paul says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In Romans 8, when Paul makes his famous declaration that we like to quote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we stop there oftentimes, but, but what that verse The complete thought of that verse cannot be understood unless we understand what the therefore is therefore. In in the rest of this, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We go down to verse 9, he says, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, if you're born again, if you belong to Jesus, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you are not in the flesh any longer. You are in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, then don't walk according to the flesh, because that's not who you are. And so if the Spirit is in us, we belong to Christ, then the fruit of the Spirit should be manifest through us. This is what it means to live soberly, righteously, and godly. It's not something we're working really hard to perform for God so that we can become saved. No. This is a way of life 
because we are saved. This is just simply a reflection of our nature. So to live righteously, godly, soberly is to walk in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So grace teaches us to live pleasing to God. Grace never permits us to sin as we please. See, a lot of people have confused grace today. Remember last week I said the meanings that we pour into our words are very important. We use the word grace. We use these Bible terms, but sometimes we're not careful to pour Bible meanings into the Bible terms. And so we say, oh, well, the grace of God, that means I can go live any way I want, do anything I want, and God has to forgive me because he's a graceful God. It just doesn't matter anymore. I had someone come to me many years ago who was going to make a life-changing decision which was not consistent with the Word of God. Matter of fact, the, the fact that they were making this decision, they were in direct opposition to the very clear command of God in Scripture. And they basically came to me hoping that I would give my blessing for what they were about to do. And I, I just told them, I said, as much, I love you and I care for you. And you're my friend, but I can't condone what you're getting ready to do because what you're getting ready to do is a clear violation of the Word of God. And I'll never forget their response to me. Their response, don't you think God wants me to be happy? I'm not happy. See, yeah, God wants you to be happy, but your happiness is not bound up in making sinful decisions. Sometimes we, we think that's the case. And we think God's obligated to extend His grace to us because He's a God of grace. But see, grace is not giving us permission to sin as we please. Grace gives us the power and the ability to live a life that is pleasing to God. The point of grace is that we can please God now. Apart from God's grace, we cannot please Him. Live as moral a life as you want to live. Live as strictly moral as you want to live. Keep all the rules and all the regulations and call yourself a good person. That will never make you acceptable to God. That will never make you pleasing to God. The only way we can please God is in His Son. The only way we can come to be in His Son is to be born again. But once we are born again and once we are in the Son and we do have the life of the Spirit in us, our being, our walk, our living should reflect that life. Does that mean we never make mistakes? Absolutely not. We make them all the time. Does that mean we never have a sinful thought? No, we have sinful thoughts all the time, or at least I I do, you know? Does that mean we're never going to get angry and sin? No, I, I get angry and sin too often. Grace doesn't give me a license to do that freely. Grace says, in spite of the fact that I still struggle with these things, God, God's grace is there teaching me how to live a life that's pleasing to Him, teaching me how to obey His commands. Not to become saved, but because I am saved. Because keeping His commands didn't save me. So, We talk about grace teaching us to live pleasing to God, not giving us permission to sin as we please. And we're to live in this manner, not to become saved, but because we 
are saved. This is the manifestation of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? So His grace and salvation is not just for heaven. Look what Paul says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly one day when we get to heaven. No. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So what grace is teaching us is not so that we'll have something one day when we get to heaven. Heaven's great. I'm looking forward to being there. But the point of my salvation is not about me getting to heaven. The point of my salvation is what God is going to do in the present age with me right now, with you right now. When we're all in heaven, there's not going to be any need to preach the gospel to save people. There's not going to be any need to, to disciple people. To, listen, it's going to be a done deal in heaven. It's now in the present age that we need to preach the gospel to those that have been blinded by the God of this world. It's now that we need to make disciples of those who, who are in the faith and those who need to be in the faith so that we can raise up disciples so that this gospel can continue to be multiplied and perpetuated from generation to generation. And so Paul is very clear here. He said, Titus, this is not about one day when you get to heaven. This is about the present age. So the grace of God teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Not just for heaven, but for now. We are witnesses now, say now, in the present age. And we're witnesses for what? Reason, ultimately for His glory. So in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Hey, go and wait in Jerusalem, and you will receive power to do what? To go out and show how great you are and do all these miracles and make a big name for yourself and travel around and say, I got the anointing? No. He said, you will receive power to be witnesses to me. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What about all those miracles, Pastor Jeff? Well, here's what Mark says. These signs will follow those who believe. See, I don't have to try to manufacture miracles. I don't have to try to gin up miracles. The Bible says if I believe and I'm going forth preaching the gospel, those things will take care of themselves. Because I'm not the one that manufactures or manifests those things. God is the one who does that. God is the one who does that. My command, the command to me, my responsibility is to go and preach the gospel. God will take care of the rest. If he needs to cause a miracle to be seen, he'll cause a miracle to be seen. If he needs a healing to be manifest, he'll manifest a healing. If there needs to be a demon cast out, you know what? He'll make sure that demon gets cast out. If we are doing what we have been commanded to do, do we believe that God is big enough to do those things? Do we believe he's big enough to heal, big enough to deliver, big enough to save? I still submit to you that the greatest miracle you will ever see or experience is your salvation. There is none greater. There is no, listen, they can tell you you've got stage 4, stage 5, stage 10 cancer. There is no sickness that is more terminal than the sickness of sin and death that we were all born with 
And there was nothing, there was no treatment, there's no cure, but God, in his grace, healed us of the greatest sickness. That's why I can say with assurance that everyone we prayed for today is healed. They are healed. They're not going to be healed. They are healed. I'm not denying the fact that, that there's cancer in bodies. I'm, I'm not denying the fact that people have real symptoms and real sickness. But remember what I always say. The facts never o- overshadow the truth. The fact is, I might have a sickness in my body, but the truth is, God is my healer. And I am healed in Him. This side or the other side, this age or in the age to come, wherever, however God chooses to do it, I am healed. None of us are going to be suffering with anything in heaven. And even if you get healed from whatever malady or ailment you have right now, your body is still on a downward slide. It's still wearing out. It's still going to get old. Hate to tell you, some of you guys may end up like me one day. Your hair's going to fall out. Your waistline's going to expand. Feet are going to hurt. It's going to be harder to bend over and touch your toes. And that's, just, that's just life. That's life in, in this body that's being broken down every day. And so Paul said, hey, this earthly tent is perishing every day, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day. This body is not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is what Paul tells us. Every time I do a funeral and I do a graveside service, I remind people, I said, this is a seed that's being planted in the ground. This body was never meant to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Death's going to come to every one of us one way or another. The body you have right now will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I can promise you that because that's what the word of God declares. It ain't going to do it. You can try to keep it as young as you want, as healthy and as fit as you want, and you should do that. But I'm telling you, one day, it is going to pass away. But your inward man, your outward man is perishing, but your inward man in Christ is being renewed day by day. As this body becomes weaker and weaker and more decrepit and more corrupt, my inward man is being conformed more and more and more to the very Son of God. Hallelujah. That's good news, church. The problem is we get way too focused on this outward man because we stand in the mirror and look at him every day. And instead of seeing Christ, we see this outward corruption and it begins to to rule our way of thinking and our way of life. And the Bible says don't let that happen. Don't let that outward rule your way of thinking. Don't let that be the stronghold that's taken your mind captive. Destroy that stronghold and understand that there is something Greater in you, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. And so what God has done for us in Christ, he's done for us in this present age, not just one day when we get to heaven. The power that he has given us through the Holy Spirit is the power to be witnesses now. Ephesians 3.10, Paul writes, Now the manifold wisdom of God is made known by who? By the church. That's you. Now, you, whether you realize it or not, you are making known the manifold wisdom of God. Now. John 13, 35. 
This is where Jesus says in verse 34, a new commandment I've given to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you should love one another. Why? For the world will know, by this the world will know, that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. When is the world going to know that we're his disciples? One day when we're all in heaven? No. What Jesus commanded his disciples to do in loving one another was telling them that the world needs to know now that you are my disciples. You need to love one another now and declare to the world that you are my disciples now. So the grace of God teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age so that we are a witness now to the glory of God, to the salvation of God. Our life speaks as a witness now. Amen? So the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. The grace of God teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And the grace of God teaches us to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a right way and there's a wrong way for us to do this. And I'm just going to be honest with you. For much of the church, I believe we have done this the wrong way now for way too many years. As a matter of fact, we've been sitting there with our bags packed waiting for the train to enter in the station and we've left the work of God undone because... We just knew any minute the train was going to pull into the station. Do you know that God never commanded us to do that? I don't care what your views are on end times and how that's all going to happen. Regardless of what your end time theology may be, nowhere in the scripture does it command us to put the, the great commission on hold. Nowhere does it command us to put our lives on hold and look for the escape clause. Well, it doesn't really matter what happens in this world. It's, you know, it's going to get worse and worse and we're going to be taken out. So who, I don't care. That's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what the disciples are. That's not the apostles. That's not the writers of scripture. And so the grace of God teaches us to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to live looking for and expecting His promised appearing. For all of us in this room, from the very youngest to the oldest, we are going to meet Him much sooner than you realize. Whether He comes or whether we go. If, if, if my grandson Noah, who's not even a year old yet, lived to be 120 years old, so that's a long time. No, it's not a long time. And died and went to meet the Lord. I'm going to tell you what, 120 years compared to eternity is nothing. See, this is our problem. We are way too short-sighted. We are way too focused on this little speck that our life is, and we, we can't see the big picture. We refuse to look at the big picture. We should be living our lives as believers, as the church, 
preparing those who are going to come after us. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-great-grandchildren. This is the way we should be thinking. Not, well, it doesn't really matter because we're going to get raptured out of here any minute. Hey, we may get raptured out of here any minute. Who knows? But the question is, how are you living your life? And this is exactly what Jesus said. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So there's a faithful way to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. So let's look at what Jesus has to say, because I think he's a pretty good reference. First of all, think about this term, looking for. This term, looking for, doesn't mean that we're sitting around waiting uh, to escape the world. Matter of fact, we're commanded by Jesus himself to be busy about the business of the kingdom. If you go to Luke 19, verse 11, Luke 19, 11, it says, And he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. See, this is not something new. Since the days of Jesus walking planet Earth, there have been God's people who thought, well, it's just going to happen right now, right now it's going to happen. And and they had it all figured out in their mind exactly the way they thought it was going to happen. And you know what happened? When it didn't happen the way they thought they had it all figured out, do you know who they got mad at? They got mad at Jesus. And so Jesus knew they thought all of this was going to happen immediately, that the kingdom would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and said to them, do business until I come. If you have a King James Bible, it says, occupy until I come. Now, we ain't talking like Occupy Wall Street. How many of you watched the Occupy Wall Street? That's not what the word occupy means in the Bible. That Greek word occupy literally means be busy about the business of the kingdom. Do business. In other words, occupy in our mind is we're we're having a sit-in. And I'm not leaving until you do what I want. No. Occupy... This Greek word occupy here means do business, do the work of the kingdom, be busy about the business of the kingdom. So Jesus said, here's what this Lord did, this master did. He went away to a far country for a long time, but before he left, he gave his servants these talents, these minas, and he says, do the business of the kingdom, do my business until I come again. Are we doing his business Or are we occupying in the wrong way? We're just all sitting around waiting to find out when he's coming back. Or how about Matthew 25, 14 through 19? I'll read verses 14, then I'll read verse 19. Matthew 25, 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Verse 19, After a long time... The Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And that's when it says, hey, the guy who was given five took it, multiplied it, and made ten. So we are to be actively doing the business of the kingdom as good and faithful servants. What is the business of the kingdom? Matthew 28, 19. 
all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Disciple-making is the business of the kingdom. This is what Jesus has commanded us to do in every gospel and in the book of Acts. And we are commanded throughout the scripture. Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We want to focus on all the big things, but the reality is we ought to be focused on the little things. If we can't get the little things, the simple things right, it's kind of like, you know, everybody wants to go into the deeper things of God. If we can't master the basics, why, why do we want to go the deeper things? We, we can't even obey the very basic things that Jesus has commanded us. If we're faithful over the small things, the little things, he'll make us faithful over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what, that's what we want to hear one day. We're to look to that day. This is what grace teaches us, to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And that's not just me escaping the tribulation of this world. Listen, there is a day coming when I will stand and give an account for what God has entrusted to each one of us. So we're to look to that day when we will give account, not for our sin. Understand this, church. We're not getting... We're not going to give account for our sin because Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin. Well, then what are we going to give an account for? We're going to give an account for our stewardship over the grace that has been entrusted to us in the present age. 1 Corinthians 3. Let's go there. Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 13, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So some are going to receive rewards, some for their work. Some people are going to work, but their work was built on the wrong thing, and their work's going to be burned up, and they're going to suffer loss, but they'll be saved. What you don't want to do is go through life and find out at the end of your life that you've been working so hard, building something that was on the wrong foundation, that was not eternal in nature. You may still be saved. Praise God for that. This goes to the point of us not wasting our time and wasting our life here on this earth. As a church, let's not waste what God has given us. So grace teaches us to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And in that glorious appearing, there is going to be an accounting. Amen? But understanding that, 
here's, here's what we need to, to really look to. That love, not fear. Say, not fear. See, if we read that scripture in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, we can become fearful. But it shouldn't be fear that motivates us. It should be love. Love should motivate us. So love, not fear, should motivate us. Love for Him and love for those that He died to make His own. Amen? This is what Paul says. Those He gave Himself for, the grace of God, which has brings salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, teaching us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Teaching us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. We should look for Him. And we should do those things not out of fear, but out of love for Him. And love for those He gave Himself for. Grace also teaches us this. Verse 14. So it's teaching us to look for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. That's good news. You couldn't give yourself. Your, your own life wasn't a sacrifice sufficient enough. He had to give Himself. He gave Himself for us. Why? Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So grace teaches us that Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he would have his very own special people. Well, that sounds kind of exclusive, Pastor Jeff. That's what the scripture says. We know not everyone's going to make it to heaven. As much as you may want everyone to make it to heaven, the reality is, read the Bible, not everyone's going to make it. And that should motivate us, because no one's going to make it to heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And our motivation should be to go and preach this gospel, because it's by the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, the salvation. They need to hear the gospel. So our motivation should be to preach this gospel so that they can respond to the grace of God in faith and be saved. Amen? That's love. That's the love I'm talking about. Don't don't do something out of fear because you're afraid God's going to punish you one day. Do it because you love God and you love those He gave Himself for. Because unless they hear the gospel, they can't be saved. They must have faith in Jesus Christ. So grace teaches us that Jesus gave himself for us, that we would, have, that we would be his own special people, or that he would have his own special people. And where do we become his own special people? In Christ. In Christ, we become his own special people. So Christ gave himself for a people to be redeemed, purified, and zealous. 
This, this is His own special people who are showing His grace and His glory. Where? When? In the present age, but also in the age to come. We're not going to show His grace and glory just in the age to come. We show His grace and glory right now in this present age. So Jesus gave Himself to do what? To have for His very own a special people, a people redeemed from every lawless deed. Every lawless deed. Can you think of all the lawless deeds you have committed in your life? Can you imagine all the lawless deeds that you will have the opportunity to commit in your life? Do you know that Jesus Christ has redeemed you from every lawless deed? Man, that ought to make you shout right there. But because we don't have a revelation of our sinfulness, we just read scriptures like that and they just kind of pass us by. Oh, can't you give me something more exciting, Pastor Jeff, than that? I knew that. Uh, You might know what it says, but do you have a revelation of, of really the condition that we were in before Jesus Christ? And He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. He gave Himself to make for Himself a people purified. A people purified for Himself. He did that. He purified for himself a people. That means if you belong to Jesus, he has purified you this morning. How many of you feel just totally purified? I don't either. But yet this is what the scripture declares about you. That he has purified for himself his own special people. You can't purify yourself. Try as you might, you can't do it. But listen, the fact that you can't do it on your own does not give you a license to just take the grace and abuse it and say, well, grace means I can sin as I please. and God's got to forgive me. No, he doesn't have to do anything. And if we live with that arrogant attitude, I can promise you, (laughs) you probably are not going to be forgiven. But if we fall upon the rock and become broken and understand the nature of our lawlessness, our sinfulness, and say, oh my God, why would you save me? Why would you redeem me? Why would you purify me? When Paul said, I am the chief among sinners, I am the least deserving, he wasn't just being pious. He understood his sinfulness. And he says, if there is anyone that does not deserve this salvation, it is me. Because Paul had a revelation of his sinfulness. The problem, I'm going to tell you, the problem in the church today is we don't have a revelation of our sinfulness. Not really. When we get a revelation of our sinfulness, it will magnify our revelation of his grace. And your revelation of His grace will never be what it should be until you begin to get a revelation of your sinfulness. But the revelation of His grace and His sinfulness should not cause us to despair. It should cause us to fall at His feet broken in worship. And out of that humility, here's what Peter and here's what James write. 
He gives more grace to the humble. The people that recognize it is only by the grace of God, the people that begin to recognize their sinfulness and their need for grace, God says to them, I will give even more grace. This is reflected in the parables of Jesus. When he says, those who have, shall be, it shall be taken away, and those who have more, it shall be given to them. Do you ever wonder about that when you read those, those parables? The guys that made all the money, here's this poor guy that, that just went and buried his talent in the ground, said, you know, I just didn't want to lose it for you, Jesus, and he, here it is, I kept it safe for you. He says, take that away from him and give it to this guy who multiplied it ten times. That which you have is going to be taken from you and given to him. This is consistent with the spiritual principle that he gives more grace to the humble. It's not the humble that need more grace. It's not because the humble need more grace. It's not because that guy needed the other guy's talent. It's because the other guy didn't recognize what he had. The humble recognize their need for his, for his grace. Therefore, he gives more grace. Because it's the humble that is there broken before God saying, Oh my God, how could you have saved me? Why would you have saved me? This is what grace teaches us. A people redeemed from every lawless deed, a people purified for himself, a people zealous for good works. When we come to that place of humility and brokenness, and God is pouring his grace out into us, it should create in us a zealous, a zealousness that wants to go and do, that wants to go and obey what Jesus has commanded us to do. Zealous for good works, not because we're saved by good works, because we were saved from ourselves. So unless we purpose, see, these things won't happen by accident. You need to purpose to obey his command. And therefore hear his word. The words we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servants. Good and faithful servants are busy about the business of the kingdom. And we're, we're not going to hear those words because we are good, but because He is good, and because He is graceful, and because He has commanded us to go and to make disciples. The question is, are we going to do that? So we don't make disciples just on Sunday morning. Disciple makers, you're, you're disciple makers. I challenge you, how are you making disciples? Parents, your disciple-making begins with your children. But it doesn't end with your children. See, we have purposefully chosen not to be an attractional church. In other words, we're not going to have bells and whistles and smoke machines and all kinds of things to try to draw people here. Because that's not the model that the Scripture shows us. The model in the Scripture is we're going to equip people to go out and be salt and light. So disciples need to be made out there. And then you, 
bring the people back here so that we can all continue to be equipped for the work of ministry. Then we go back out there. You win them to Christ and you begin to disciple them. You bring them back in here. This is what Paul is telling Titus. This is the model that we see in the New Testament throughout the Scripture. This is what good and faithful servants do. This is what the church is commanded to be. Where does it begin? It begins in our heart. It begins right here in our heart. We have to purpose to be a people zealous for His good works and for His glory. Amen? Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let's stand. So grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Teaches us to live, to walk according to the Spirit of God. Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. It teaches us to be looking for the appearing of the Lord. It teaches us that Christ gave Himself. That He would have His own special people. Father, we thank You for Your grace. It was grace that saved us. And Lord, for those that are here today that, that know that they are in Christ, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, begin to teach us these principles. That, Lord, we wouldn't see church as someplace we come to experience something. That, Lord, we would rightly divide the word and understand that we're called to be witnesses, salt and light in the world that you have put us in in the cities and the places that you have put us in. Lord, you've put us in Taylor. And we are to be salt and light in this community. Lord, we are all called, not just pastors, not just teachers. We are all called as believers to be disciple makers. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us to begin to consider that and ask ourselves, how am I making disciples? And if I'm having a hard time answering that question, God, that you'll begin to deal with us individually and you'll begin to deal with us corporately, that we would be a church, a body of people known as disciple makers. Lord, this is what you've commanded. This is how you will be glorified. Let us be a people, let us be a church that obeys your command and brings glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Come on, give the Lord a good hand. Have a great day. Dodgeball tonight, yay, nay. Are we dodging balls tonight? Need to know. Hmm? Okay. I don't know if you guys, since y'all had company and if y'all had...